WOWDLP Tacoma Park. The sacred writings of the Baha'i Faith teach that music is a ladder for the soul. My name is Jack Gordon, and I'm host of Interfaith Ish. On this ongoing series of conversations that I'm calling Soul Ladder Music, I invite you to climb with me as we hear songs and stories from a diverse array of musicians who connect sound and spirit. Alicia Svigels is a composer and violinist, most famous for her work as a founder of the Grammy award-winning group, The Klezmatics. Since she began her career in the 1980s, Alicia has been on a mission reviving the tradition of klezmer fiddling. Alicia has made multiple groundbreaking klezmer fiddle albums and collaborated on projects ranging from heavy metal to traditional Greek music. Most recently, in May 2023, Alicia was awarded the honorary degree of Doctor of Humane Letters by the Jewish Theological Seminary for extraordinary contributions to the arts and Jewish life. Personally, klezmer is one of my favorite soul musics, and I had an amazing time learning about the origins of this genre, making connections with other styles from around the world, and reflecting on the ineffable way we are touched at a spiritual level by sound and melody. Enjoy my conversation with Alicia Svigels. I've long held that any song is immediately better if it includes uh, any of three instruments. And those for me are the Hammond organ, the lap steel, and the fiddle. If it has, if a song has the fiddle in it, it's immediately like a thousand percent better. You should start a trio of Hammond organ, lap steel, and fiddle, and you'll have your, your dream band. I've talked to people about it. I wish I had any sort of proficiency in music at all. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I will say that it doesn't matter what the genre of music it is. I feel like as soon as somebody uh, incorporates that into a song, I'm I'm immediately um, so much more engaged. And, and of wow. course, you know, the 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 fiddle or, you know, I would say like the klezmer violin, you know, quintessential instrument of of Ashkenazi Jewish music. Um, and so I'm really excited to be able to talk to you about this um, genre of music that I love so much. Klezmer is one of these musical genres that just speaks to my to my soul. Just <laughs> whatever, whatever I hear some of those um, licks, whether it's from a fiddle or a clarinet, I feel like I'm home immediately. Yeah, I know the feeling. I know exactly what you're talking about. That's how I got started with it. I heard it when I was a teenager and went, ah, oh, that's my music. Yeah. <laughs> Let's start at the beginning 
Tell us a little bit about your your upbringing and where does your your Jewishness intersect with music making? Well, my parents started me out on the violin when I was five, and uh, I didn't realize it at the time, and maybe they didn't either, but it turns out that's kind of a Jewish, an Ashkenazic Jewish tradition um, to stick a violin in the hands of your five-year-old and you yeah, know, take, I failed take terribly at that one. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you throw the spaghetti against the wall and, and see where it sticks. So it stuck on me. Right. Um, so, uh, in fact, my, my great grandparents on one side are from Odessa and mm. there was a very big violin tradition there in the Jewish community. Uh, klezmers to begin with, but then a, a lot of the best klezmers would at, at some point went on to conservatory in St. Petersburg when that started opening up for Jews. And you're uh, using and the, klezmers as a noun to describe the musicians. Right. In, in Yiddish, a klezmer is a person, a musician. Uh, in fact, the the genre, the use of the word as a genre, you know, as a as an LP bin, <laughs> when I started right. playing it in the eighties, is relatively recent klezmer music. But uh, in Yiddish, a klezmer was just a musician, a musician who played Jewish music, and in Odessa, where my family is from, originally. There were lots and lots of klezmer fiddle players. In fact, there's a Yiddish expression that says, do you want to know how many men, and, and it was mostly men, uh, live in a house, count the fiddles hanging on the wall. Because <laughs> everybody played the fiddle. And then some of them, their, they or their kids went on to become some of the great musicians of the, the classical musicians of the 20th century, like David Oistrakh. So I, when I was five, I got started out in the same way. And uh, I was trained classically. When I was a, a teenager, I started getting, uh, taking an interest in different kinds of folk music, uh, Irish fiddle, old timey music. I was actually, I was playing the violin on the streets in Manhattan to earn money to go to music camp mm, <laughs> and eventually wow. also to go to college. And I met a group of Italian bluegrass musicians who didn't speak a lick of English, but taught me how to play old timey music. And okay, um, universal so I, language of music. Yeah, it was. They were, you know, fanatical about American folk music, and uh, I would go to Irish sessions, and I was very taken by these different kinds of music with sounds that you know weren't notatable and were kind of secret codes that you had to decipher and gave you such a beautiful feeling that was impossible to articulate in words, but uh, it, like connected you to a whole culture and I don't know, worldview. Um, and what eventually ended up happening was that I discovered Jewish music, which was, you know, the music of my family to begin with. My parents listened to uh, a radio station called WEVD, which by the way, stands for Eugene V. Debs, the socialist leader. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And it billed itself as the station that speaks your language, uh, which was mostly Yiddish, <laughs> but it. they had all kinds of immigrant, immigrant programs, Yiddish theater music, Yiddish folk songs, cantorial music, uh, not so much klezmer because 
Klesmer had fallen out of favor after being mm. the the music of the Jewish community, the Ashkenazi Jewish community, which is you know the largest subset, um, in the twenties, thirties, forties. In the fifties and sixties, it's kind of fell by the wayside because uh, the Jewish community became very Israel oriented, and kids were learning. Israeli folk songs and Israeli folk dances. And, um, but in the 70s, uh, after like 20 years of this, uh, a, a youth klezmer revival began. Mm. And uh, I ended up in the second wave of that. There I was, you know, studying Bach and Brahms and all of a sudden here's this stuff. But it was all clarinet at that point because clarinet was really the American Klezmer instrument, it, it, whereas in Europe in the 19th century and previous, the, the fiddle was the, as you were saying, the quintessential Jewish music. It was like the right, voice right. of the Jewish instrument, the voice of the Jewish soul. Uh, in this country, the clarinet with its popularity in jazz and so forth took over. Oh, that's and interesting. Okay. So everybody from the revival on, and actually probably before that, thought of when they thought of Klesmer, they thought of the clarinet. So I took it upon myself to bring back the Klesmer fiddle. And there were just, there's just a few recordings, well, at the time, even fewer than we have now, that were available, old 78s of original Klesmer fiddling from the 20s. And I took those and slowed them down and analyzed them. I, I, I figured out what they were doing physically. But yeah by listening at like half speed. The music was complex and profound and beautiful. And it was what you described, like I felt at home when I heard it. And yes. I had been interested in different kinds of folk fiddling and it was like, oh, wait a minute, this is it. funny that you mentioned Eugene Debs as being the radio uh, uh, namesake. The call letters, yeah. Yeah, because I, you know, I, I definitely will will cop to the fact that it stirs my Yiddish anarchist proclivities uh, whenever, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I hear, I hear that music. I feel like it's like a call to action. It really, whether it's dancing or, or connecting with culture or something, but it requires movement, you know, it requires of us to, to get up 
and 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 not be complacent, whether that's physically or or politically or what have you. Yeah, I, in fact, I feel like what it does is it cultivates, you know, as a listener, it cultivates your people connection. It makes you feel connected to other people, to a group of people. Um, and that comes out in the dancing, like the dancing that goes to this music, it's circle dancing. And it, it often involves people putting their hands around their arms around each other's shoulders and everybody's moving in unison. And you get that, you know, beautiful boundary dissolving feeling mm. where you're, you're part of something bigger. For me, that bigger something is this extended family of people, fellow dancers and musicians, if you're playing. And, you know, it's true, if you extend that to working for change, it's so, you know, especially now, it's so enervating and disheartening to try to do stuff on your own alone. Like, what are you going right. to do? Like, like people's Facebook posts, you know, <laughs> in your living room. Um, but it's connecting with people that, you know, gives everybody the numbers and strength to, you know, to fight the good fight. And, and plus, you know, music being an essential part of that, of, of course, going back to that Emma Goldman quote of, I don't want to be a part of your revolution if I can't dance, right? Yeah. So we have to get up and dance. And what she better way than through Klezmer? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I bet she was, actually. I would have partied with Emma Goldman. <laughs> it sounded like as a youth, you were you were also soaking up the cultures of of all of these other communities that were around you. Um, Greek, Italian. I heard you reference in in some other conversations Berber, and then you went on to to study ethnomusicology, right? So, how how did um, klezmer really fit into? all of those spaces as you were absorbing and imbibing all of these different music traditions. Yeah. So one of the things that happened is that, um, I had, I had been playing on the street to earn money to go to college. And I also had a scholarship to Brown and I was going to major, I was starting to major in, in neuroscience. And I still love science. That's like in, in a parallel universe, I, I went in that direction. But, you know, in this universe, um, at some point, like it was when Reagan was elected in I, my like some money dried up and my scholarship disappeared. Oh, no. And I dropped out of college for a year and a half and I went to Europe with $10, which you can imagine my parents loved. And the idea was, it was like, I don't, I wanted to go with zero to, so I could show that I could do it. But they were like, here, take a $10 bill. And I went and hitchhiked, you know, alone with my violin around Europe, playing on the streets and meeting people and staying with them. It was like the kind of thing I would never let my own kids do. <laughs> it was the eighties though. And, uh, you know, it was a more innocent time, but I did that for a year and, and I met musicians from all over the world, like the Berbers that you mentioned in Paris, I joined a, a Berber band and we played on the streets in Paris. And I really worked hard at trying to get those sounds for each musical culture that I became involved in. So then when I graduated college, I was like, well, 
I'm just going to keep doing it. And I kept playing in the subway in Manhattan, in the streets. And I was answering ads in the Village Voice for musicians. And somebody placed an ad looking to form a klezmer band, which mm. in 1985 was like, who even ever heard of it? Yeah, you know, that not that many people. And the people answered the ad. Together, we ended up forming the Klezmatics. Tell me a little bit about, about that that coming together then. It sounded like it was very serendipitous that you would come across this ad for yeah. for for this group and and to encounter these kindred spirits that also were were tuned into this musical genre it was very serendipitous and the other half of what happened that made it work for me was at the same time i had gotten a job playing at a greek nightclub in astoria Mm. And I really fell in love with that fiddle music. And I taught myself to speak Greek. And, you know, I obsessed over the Greek fiddle style. I spent several years playing with them. And it was a trip and a half. And wow. what struck me about it in particular was that people of all ages, like several generations of a family, would come with little kids at 10 p.m. and would dance till 4 a.m. And like... This was a, re a really living tradition that the young people, people my age I was meeting, you know, people, it, it, we were in our 20s, like that, they considered that their music, not mm. the kind of hegemony of commercial English language, popular music, which had, you know, taken over the world. Like they listened to that too, but this was their music. And at the same time, I was starting out with Klezmer, but it was sort of this revival thing. And we were listening to old recordings and trying to kind of imitate them. And it was an epiphany, so to speak, a Jewish epiphany. <laughs> like, this is what Klezmer should be for Jews. It mm. should be our our actual music. It should be something we own, and it's now, and it moves forward, and and it ties the the interruptions of the past. And the interruption wasn't just assimilation or Israel; it was the Holocaust too, obviously. Um, and you know, tries to bridge that gap, which which Greek musicians never had, because they have a continuous, unbroken history, mm. um, and moves it forward and. That was part of what the Klezmatics ended up doing. We, instead of carving out the sort of museum space in our musical brains, we welcomed our whole musical selves into the music, which included our backgrounds. We had a variety of backgrounds in rock and jazz and folk music and all kinds of genres. And um, and it kind of worked. You know, now there's like the, the Klezmer revival exploded, which, I, I find kind of hilarious. Like it was such a nerdy niche thing. <laughs> like what happened? <laughs> we were such musical rebels and, but it really, I mean, it was kind of our wish came true and it's, it's back and it's thriving. And you know, it's a lot of, there's a generation of kids who grew up with it just the way the Greek kids grew up with their music. Μια είναι η ουσία, δεν υπάρχει αθανασία. Άιντε μια είναι η ουσία, δεν υπάρχει αθανασία. Αχ και του παραδείσου η κοιλάδα, 
One of the songs that you picked that was a particularly strong influence on you is by one of the most popular Greek singers since the 70s. So tell me about Haris Alexiou and, and how you encountered her music and, and what it means for you. When I was playing in that Greek nightclub, which was called Cafe Akroama in Astoria, uh, she was a very big star and we, we would cover some of her songs. and. Her voice, her delivery, the music, it just transported me. I, I couldn't get through a song without tearing up. Mm. Even even the, well, especially the, the fast ones, the ecstatic ones. Then I got to meet her too. Wow. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, what a thrill. <laughs> um, so... I it, I just included it in the list out of love. I just love it. And I maybe I was Greek in a past life, I don't know. <laughs> but the music is a is a close cousin to Jewish music. Uh cluster music uh developed in places like Odessa and Moldavia where there was a lot of it was a multicultural world which included Greek musicians and there was uh, exchange between Greek and Jewish music. Um, there's a theory that Rebetica, which is kind of Greek, you know, supposedly underworld music is like the music of Rebbe's Rebetica. I don't know if it's oh, true, wow. but, but there are a lot of this, the melodies are shared. And, uh, so it kind of made sense, you know, to have a, an affinity for Greek music, but I just love this particular singer's soul. Yeah. I, listening to Arius Alexiou, I, it, it called to mind, um, the singing style of uh, Um Kultum from yeah. Egypt, yeah, and and there was one particular, you know, I, I I hear what you're saying about the when she hits some of those notes because there was just one part in that song in particular in the song Mia Inne uh, that that just you know just sank right into my <laughs> yes. sank right into me, and I thought, oh wow, these you know they're they're definitely cousins, her and Um yeah. <laughs> totally, totally. I mean, technically speaking, it's a lot of the same modes. I was talking about modes before. Yes. Yeah, it's a lot of the same musical ingredients, but each done in their own very, very uniquely flavored way. It seems like the part of the, the key ingredient was that flexibility that you all had. Um, because if you look at some of those albums that you were a part of, you know, I... I I hear some lyrics that are in English. I I see references to uh, Romania and Morocco, and and so it sounds like there's there's some blending that's happening there, as opposed to taking this mindset that no, it's this fixed in amber, pure musical style that 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 uh, we can't ever change and add our own uh, unique um, spices to. Uh, but it, exactly, you that's added a- all that. That's a beautiful articulation of it. And, you know, the idea of authenticity in that sense, um, that there is a fixed and amber version of a musical tradition 
is totally a myth. It probably stems from like 19th century German romanticism as an intellectual tradition. And there's just no actual, for musicians know there's like no musical validity to it because you cannot step in the same musical river twice. Mm. I mean, music is constantly changing and musicians in particular are friendly. You know, like musicians love to meet other musicians from right. other musical traditions and play together and swap tunes. And, you know, it just naturally happens that music changes every decade. It's it's different. Every five years, it's different. You can't stop. That train leaves the station constantly. You know, there's no way around it. So to take a fixed slice that somebody recorded in 1925 and say, this is it, it's just doesn't align with reality. And thank goodness, because that's how music grows and changes all over the world. It's It's a good thing. Is that dynamic process, that that living experience, that living relationship with your music, also something that um, that you see as as uh, part of your Jewish identity? Like, have you? I don't know what type of uh, Jewish upbringing you had on on sort of the you know the religious side of things in terms of in terms of traditions and rituals and dogma, but were there were there was that fluidity and that and that uh, embrace of change also part of uh, how you experience your spiritual life? Wow, what an interesting question. My spiritual my spiritual life tends to revolve around music and nature mm. and people. So I do love going to like a really old school synagogue service with a a cantor in the old tradition. Yes. And I, I love singing with a group of people in a service and feeling that, again, that kind of connection to something bigger that way. Um, dogma hasn't ever really interested me or, you know, per se. I, the thing about Jewish folk culture the Yiddish language, folklore, Yiddish literature, the spoken language, and then, you know, music, food ways, all that stuff is that uh, as traditions go, it's super, super entwined with religious tradition. Like it's really impossible to separate that traditionally the right. way we're used to separating sacred and secular in you know, contemporary culture. It's like every wry saying in Yiddish, every riddle, every joke, every story is so replete with uh, references to religious texts. It's so a part of daily life that you can't say where religion st starts and stops and life, you know, where one begins and the other ends and vice versa. It's just, 
it's sort of like there there is no Yiddish culture without religion. So from that point of view, I mean, you were talking about fluidity and openness. This is from the point of view of, you know, the kind of the opposite, like within this world, its own world. Um, that's the relationship between culture and and religion. And in fact, and then I'll get to the open question, the question of openness, the open question of openness. <laughs> so. <laughs> Um, the music is like that too. Like a lot of you know, klezmer music is like that. Um, a lot of klezmer music are uh, Hasidic nagunim, um, devotional, wordless songs, which are rendered as virtuosic instrumental pieces um, and played for dancing, and not necessarily in a religious context. Um, the the style, the, those ornaments and stuff that I, I was that I mentioned before, a lot of it derives from cantorial singing style. So the music is full of its relationship to religion and full as maybe as a result of religious feeling, of spiritual feeling, of um, ecstatic moments, of uh, you know high emotion and. So that's that's the traditional Yiddish Jewish world. At the same time, Jews have always lived in the world. And, you know, we didn't have our own country for thousands of years. And, and we, we're still a diaspora people, even though there is a state of Israel, um, which, you know, was supposed to gather it in the exiles. But we're basically um, wherever we go where a subculture that exists co-territorially, to use an ethnomusicological term, um, with other cultures and has a complex relationship with them. Traditionally, there was some mixing, there was some isolating, but there's was definitely always an exchange, a musical exchange, a cultural exchange. There was always intermarriage there was always pe there were always people going back and forth between groups i mean at, at times more fraught than others more dangerous than others but we've never been a culture that exists in its own boundaries and so whether people like it or not it is an open culture a porous culture and it's benefited a lot from that and the the surrounding cultures have benefited a lot from that too <laughs>
I'm really interested about the work that you've done with uh, taking silent films and creating um, these soundtrack compositions for them. Can you tell me a little bit about um, this this film project and and your scoring scoring work uh, with particularly with this film the City Without Jews and the track uh, Hineni? I've been scoring silent films for about ten years now. Um, one I did on my own, my first one, The Yellow Ticket, and then I uh, was invited to team up, team up with a prolific and brilliant silent film composer named Donald Sosin, and together we've done three of them. Um, he has done thousands, so I'm a total wow. newbie in that in you know in this silent film world. Uh, but what we do is we take these early silent films, and actually we have one which was made in the 90s as, as sort of a fictional early silent film. Uh, and we compose scores that their first mission is to really support and enhance and match closely with what's going on in the screen at every moment. They're, they're all about getting inside the world of, of the movie. Um, Musically, they weave uh, newly composed Jewish music that I write, and and sometimes Donnie, and he, he's a classical pianist and a composer who can improvise all kinds of complex, you know, in 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 the tradition of Western art music, you know, amazing compositions just on the fly, and some mm. of what we do is composed, some of it's improvised, um, so the. The track that you mentioned, uh, Hineni, is from our score for City Without Jews, which uh, is a 1924 silent film about a fictional city called Utopia, which is actually a kind of dystopia and uh, was supposed to represent Vienna and the first stirrings of dangerous stirrings of anti-Semitism. Nobody could have known then how far this would go, and it depicts uh, a city where the entire Jewish population is expelled uh, and then later invited to return. But uh, there are these heart-rending scenes of these exoduses. And it's very uh, resonant with what's going on all over the world today. So I took as my starting point a composition by the great cantor Yessela Rosenblatt, which I think he recorded in the 20s, and the, the religious text basically is saying, here we are, God, help us with this, with what's happening to us. It's so interesting to hear your description of, of the experience of taking a, a, a piece of work from now nearly 100 years ago um, that has these themes in the story that are very relevant to today. I mean, they were, it sounds like they were, they were prescient for the, for the immediate time that they were in just, you know, a decade or so later. Um, but even have echoes of that today. And then to, to be here, you are, you know, in, in contemporary time, um, the, the product of, of a, of a community that's been now through that hundred years of experience and, and taking the music from back then, you know, that has references to back then and and bringing it into into a contemporary performance of that. I just I I 
it there's there's so many levels to how how mind blowing that is. <laughs> yeah, you know what I what I love about old stuff for that reason, old music, old films, is that the stuff that lasts, as everybody knows, is is you know the masterpieces are what last and come down to us. But the, and the fact that it's old means that the superficial trappings of whatever the technological or fashion moment is, you know, e either now or then, get sloughed off, and what remains is what's universal in human experience: the universal emotions, the tragedies, the the political struggles that just keep coming back that are you know related to our whatever our primate brains or however you want to understand it um when you deal with old stuff then you can really cut to the chase that way Let's talk about your your track uh, coming back to Earth and and the project that that was a part of. It also has sort of a a connection to a cultural preservationist um, and ethnomusicologist Beragovsky. Yeah, so there was this eth ethnomusicologist named Moshe Beragovsky who, in the 1920s and 30s in Kiev, took it upon himself to send out expeditions to the shtetlach, the, the small towns uh, with a big Jewish population in each one in Ukraine and uh, record the folk music and also prescient because he couldn't have known that just a few years later that entire musician population would be massacred. Mm. So it was a, he's an incredible hero to people 
who love Jewish music to classroom musicians and listeners because he preserved thousands of these items. He made wax cylinder recordings and then transcribed them. And they, this material resided in an archive that everybody assumed had been destroyed, but then resurfaced in the 1990s, resurfaced for the West when the Soviet Union opened up. And people have been mining this treasure ever since, including me. So uh, a few years back, a, an ethnomusic, a contemporary ethnomusicologist actually named Yonatan Malin at University uh, of Colorado at Boulder invited my musical partner, Uli Geisendorfer and me um, to join him in a residency where we would take this material, which he was studying and which we were already working on. In fact, we released an album together called Berigovsky Suite, which are arrangements of, of this archival material. So in this residency, which was called Archive Transformed, we would use this stuff as the basis for new compositions. And one of the uh, melodies I wrote was this one on, on the track you mentioned called Coming Back to Earth because uh, I had been in the clouds when it started coming to me uh, in a mountain that I hiked up during the residency and I was descending. And as I was descending and kind of weaving along these switchback trails, this melody was emerging that was following the contours of the path mm. and uh, falls as it goes. And I took out my phone and started singing it because I knew I, it was long and I wouldn't remember it otherwise. And then we ended up uh, arranging it together and recording it. This Armenian musician that you listed, Jivan Gasparyan, can you tell me a little bit about, about his work and what that's meant to you? Well, this particular track has this unearthly, almost spooky quality, which I love. Again, this is a really specific musical culture. Those are ornaments and sounds which you only hear played this way in Armenian music. So it's a treasure in that way. Uh, and what it evokes is very spiritual. 
to me. It transports you even out of the communal experience of humanity, which I treasure out into the universe. To me, it, it sounds like the music of the spheres. Mm. I don't know why, I can't explain why, but I feel like that's what the musician taps into and that's where it takes me into outer space. Do you remember the first time that you were really so profoundly moved by a piece of music like you're describing in that really spiritual huh. way? Wow. What a good question. The first time. I I do I I don't know that this is the first time, but I do have a memory of <laughs> I mean, I think I was four or something. But hearing Pachelbel's Canon, mm. I was at my cousin's and my uncle was very proud of his stereo system. You know, it was <laughs> 1967. <laughs> and he was Speakers cranking that were it. bigger than you were probably at that Absolutely. time. Absolutely. <laughs> and he put on an LP of Pachelbel's Canon and I was just stopped in my tracks and I mean, I, I'm a musician, so I think about these things technically. Obviously, I didn't at the time, but there are these suspensions, which is a harmonic term that like a tension in the chord that then resolves. And it's so full of longing. Can a four-year-old feel longing? Maybe, maybe we remember mm -hmm. longing for our mother when we're in our crib and she's away as an infant. Whatever it was, like that unfettered, kind of sadness, but not a, a, a bad sadness. Like that's another mystery of music. Why does it feel good to listen to sad music and be made to feel sad? It's right. a bizarre thing, but it's universal. But I was just, I couldn't even talk. It just like, it wrapped around my being. And I felt that way whenever it played for the next like eh, 15 years or so. Wow. Those are, yeah, they're just such deep things to reflect on. Why why did this particular piece of music, you know, catch me in that in that one way? You know, was it was it the moment that I was in, or was it was it something about the piece, and then coming back to it over and over again, and and developing that relationship with it? Yeah. I mean, it was definitely the music. I felt it. I remember thinking, I felt it in my belly. Mm. And I, I think mm. I described it to some adult that way. But you were conscientious I, of it at the bom in the moment. You yeah, knew what you was, were experiencing. I feel that in my belly. Play that again. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It kind of feels like that's on on a on a certain level that's what life is about. These ideas of these these connections with something you know, it can be in a place of worship, you know. I th I think about that feeling when I went to Kol Nidre services with my father. Mm. Um 
that the moment when when the um we had a particularly good cantor in the synagogue that I grew up in um and and so I feel like I had that type of that type of profound musical connection um with the with the services you know uh regularly um wow but Lucky. but I do yeah, yeah. yeah. I, and it and it's funny because it wasn't a particularly religious experience like it, matters of god and so forth were not really present in my mind you know these are abstract characters or mythologies i liked mythology as a kid and 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 so you know these characters from um the torah and everything were 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 like the you Greek know, gods. They were like Greek gods. And then yeah. I was into comic books and they were like superheroes. And yeah. you know, it was it was all that. But 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 that I remember very clearly um when when the cantor that my dad would say, watch, you know, he would sort of grab me by the shirt and pull me to the end of the aisle. Oh, wow. and you know, co- you know, compel me to pay to, to watch, to pay attention that this is the one time during the year when when the cantor prostrates himself in front of the ark yeah and and just that moment swept over me you know with such a really um profound sense of of this is important you know yeah. this and and it was tied very much to the music because he was he was singing at the time and you know and i remember sort of the the interruption in his voice when when he was prostrated and then had to be lifted up by by the two men that were alongside him to bring him back up there. Wow. You know? So there was just there was something about those those early childhood moments, you know, yeah. of, of when you connect. I mean, in that way it was like a very direct relationship with with sort of our 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 religious life. But you know, I I I I don't know. I I feel like I I feel like I had it the other day. I, I happened to listen to some Ariana Grande song, and I also had huh. like a I had a I had to be like, no, damn this this lady really could sing. You know, there's something yeah. about it. Oh my god, there's gosh. something about it. So you know, it's funny how that how it just sort of sometimes it hits you out of nowhere. That yeah, you know. yeah. Wow, I got to go listen to Ariana Grande. <laughs> my eldest child uh, has been a big fan of hers i don't know if they still yeah, are I, but... you know talented talent is talent As a bit of background, my my family is obviously it's Jewish, but I'm also a practicing Baha'i. Uh, oh, we wow. have a, a, a dual religious tradition in our, oh, in our family. Oh, huh. interesting. Um, and the and the name for this this music series that we're doing, Soul Ladder Music, it comes from a line from the Holy Writings of the Baha'i Faith that say that God has made music like a ladder for our souls. Mm. And so I've been asking my guests. How does this image strike you? What what about that? What what is that idea of of music being a ladder for our souls? How does that hit you? Well, a scale is a ladder 
It's mm. even the same word. You scale a mountain, and you know, a scale is something you go up step by step. Mm. And so, to me, a ladder is a, a it's a musical idea, and that's where you're going. It's funny because the you know that track I that that tune I wrote, coming back to earth. It's about going the other way. I mean, what goes up has to come down. So, yes. you know, there's value to c coming back with whatever you, you found up there. Um, but yeah, a, la a ladder is an intrinsic part of music. Oh man. I love that. That's so great. <laughs> I love it. Every time, every time I ask the question, somebody adds a new dimension to it. So of course I'm going to get oh, a, yeah. you know, a musical a music academic here, you know, somebody who knows this inside and out to be able to add that formal training and, and that, that idea to it. I think that that's great. I was interviewing stick of, of the, uh, the celebrated group dead prez um some some months ago and and he talked about the idea of of yeah if you're going to go up a ladder you can also go down a ladder and there's some music that bring you upwards and there's some music that brings you down to that base so yeah um um that you might find that also when you interact with uh some of ariana grote's music you know oh, some really? of it some of it is you know is taking us higher in a really beautiful way and and then you you know you dissect some of the lyrics and you're like ooh, this is definitely bringing us down to a sort of our more base material desires yeah. well there you gotta embrace that too that's part of being human i love it i yeah. love it a, a bit of news is you recently were awarded this honorary doctorate. So congratulations on that. And, and Thank tell you. me, tell me a little bit about why this is um, not just a special moment for, for you individually, but, but um, for the Klezmer music scene. I, yeah, I was really surprised, um, amazed it surprises isn't even the word and so gratified and so happy to find out this this bit of news that the jewish theological seminary in new york um which is a flagship seminary uh is awarding me an honorary doctorate uh I keep joking that like now I get a doctorate. I didn't even have to write a dissertation. And, you know, <laughs> it's it the best like, way to get a doctorate. You just fast track uh, it. I just skipped that whole thing of school, all doing the, the schoolwork. Yeah. And you um, only had to be excellent at your craft for like 30 something years. <laughs> well, that that's what that's what people say when I said that I'm <laughs> I'm I'm married to a Ph.D. So I, I know that uh, I hope people aren't too um you know put out by the fact that one can get an honorary one but <laughs> um but it's also is kind of historic i don't think that anybody involved in cluster music has been awarded an honorary doctorate before it's called doctor of humane letters hmm. which i i love humane letters you know, um, what could the be in, better what would than the, that? In, the inhumane ones be? Words. Are there humane numbers? <laughs> <laughs> but humane letters. Um, and the fact that this institution is recognizing the 
and valuing this beautiful, deep, old musical tradition, valuing music, valuing folk culture, valuing uh, Yiddish culture by awarding a doctorate to somebody who has made this their life's work uh, is a wonderful thing. It's, it's a wonderful thing for the culture. And it shows that what started as a very quirky, quixotic, how do you say it? Like uh, a quixotic. wacky idea, quixotic, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. <laughs> it's Don Quixote, so. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Quixotic, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, this quest that in the 70s and 80s has come to fruition. And of course, I'm tickled that I'm the person that it's been conferred on, but I'm even more than that happy that uh, this Yiddish culture, which has had its ups and downs in the institutional Jewish world that was rejected, was rejected by the state of Israel when it was formed. It's, it's been mm. rejected over the years by American Jewry, that it's been uh, embraced again, that Jews have come home to this uh, is, is very compelling. And uh, I'm really pleased to see it happen. Well, I, I heard you say in a, in a in another interview that your your grandfather, who was obviously this this other stellar professional musician, would have been scandalized to know that you had become uh, a klezmer yourself. Um, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully this <laughs> you know <laughs> this uh, reinstates the 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 status in in his eyes. <laughs> exactly. So, I think uh, the headline would have freaked him out, but once he got the whole backstory, he would have been happy about it. <laughs> this has been such a great time to spend with you and and to to hear your stories and to talk about this music and really gain such a, a greater appreciation and education about um, the connection between klezmer and and other musics of the world and uh and to really understand that you know that profound oneness that exists in in music that connects all of humanity so thank you for being really a a, a wonderful exemplar about that and and all the the ways that you create music thank you and thank you for having me it's been really fun talking to you what an interesting conversation <laughs> I answered some questions I've never been asked before. So yeah. <laughs> That's what we try to do. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Wonderful. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks again for making the climb with me this week on Soul Ladder Music. You can learn more about Alicia Svigals at A-L-I-C-I-A-S-V-I-G-A-L-S dot com. Look for the podcast version of this show on all platforms where you'll find even more bonus content where Alicia and I go deeper into why certain sounds and melodies feel like emotional experiences. As always, I'll have links to all the songs in this episode in our show notes and check out the Soul Ladder Music playlist on Spotify for a running list of all the music played during this series. Thanks to Jeff Philosopher for providing our theme music and to associate producer Aiden Keys. And keep tuning in to WOWD 94.3 FM, Tacoma Radio, for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at tacomaradio.org.